Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the same 24 hours podcast. So I have another favorite episode. I know I say, no, this was my favorite interview. No, this was my favorite interview. I do that all the time. So I I have lots of favorites, but Dr. BJ Miller returned. So he was on episode 206. We, we had a meeting, a meetup in March when COVID first hit, and he was one of the guest speakers. And oh, he just... I love this man. He is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful doctor, palliative care physician, and he is doing amazing things with his new nonprofit called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E. And basically, it is an online um, palliative care resource, but not just a library of information, but where you, or if you're a patient or a caregiver, or you're someone in a remote area who doesn't have access to this, this type of care in person, you can go to this resource and, and there's counseling and communication and, and resources and tools. And you can speak to people during these difficult transitionary periods in your life. So Dr. Miller decided to come back on the podcast so we could talk about that. But as always, he has so much more to offer. So, so, such a great episode and grateful as always for his time and energy and the work he is doing in the world. So check out Metal Health. I will post up the links in the show notes and enjoy this incredibly inspiring episode with Dr. BJ Miller. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. All right, you ready to go? Yeah. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Same 24 Hours podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. So excited about our return guest. Dr. BJ Miller is back. Hello. Hi, Meredith. Welcome back. So anyone who hasn't listened to episode 206, Um, I had Dr. Miller on who insists I call him BJ. So I had BJ on, um, one of our live community meetups back, I believe in March or April at the beginning of COVID when we were all trapped at home. And and that was such a great, great meetup. So everyone listened to episode 206. Um, but I want to start with the very quick version (laughs) of -hmm. your story, BJ. I know you probably are so tired of telling it. But how did you end up in palliative care? Palliative care. I have a hard time with that word. Um, how did you become you and, and on your mission that you're on? Um, well, you know, let's see if we can boil that ocean down a little. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the big event for me was, I mean, I, I had no interest in medical science per se. I, I On my list of things to become was not a, was not a doctor until... Um, Midway through college, I, I was screwing around and on a commuter train with my friends, just a park train sitting there um, one night. And I had a metal watch on and I got climbed up on top of the train like a, like you climb a jungle gym. 
And I got close enough to the power source and the electricity arc to the watch, and that was that. So I, uh, you know, was severely burned from that, lost both legs below the knees and then my one arm below the elbow. And, you know, had my dance with death for a couple months in the burn unit uh, at St. Barnabas in New Jersey. Um, and over that, you know, so that was a huge wake up call. That was my, that was my, what I call the cosmic spanking, this moment where I just really reoriented me. Um, cosmic spanking. Yeah. You know, this is some act of nature, act of God. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, oh, let me turn that off real quick. Sure. My cell phone. Um, so. Anyway, that cosmic spanking, yes, this thing much larger than myself came along and acquainted me with the, the world beyond myself <laughs> and the world that included myself. You know, it's sort of a two-step right there. Um, so there's a lot to say about that experience, but also built on, so becoming a disabled person, dealing with death, uh, leaning into reinventing myself a zillion times. That was really, that was the start of my interest in medicine. But really, if I'm honest, it goes back far in that. I mean, my mother, I, was, I grew up with a mom who had polio. And uh, she's got post-polio syndrome pretty intensely. So I've been a caregiver since I was a kid mm. um, by some measure. We never used that language, but that's what I was doing. And this, right. so all of this is sort of going into medical care, going into medicine, then going into palliative care and hospice work has been sort of a, a coming together of a bunch of threads in my life. Yeah. Well, since COVID, since, you know, March-ish, mm-hmm. things, the world's obviously turned upside down. I mean, I saw on the news this morning that the Metropolitan Opera is closed till September, 2021. There's no shows mm-hmm. on Broadway. It's like, what, you know, and, and that's the least of it, right? That's yeah. just the exterior, like what? We can't go see a play ever. Yeah. Um, but the world and COVID and how has that impacted your work? And, and what do you like, let's just start the conversation there. Cause I think that mm-hmm. that is impacting so many of us on, on different levels, whether it's personal or just an overall sense of <laughs> a cosmic spanking in some way, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, there are a couple of ways um, for me personally, and I can just start just practically or logistically. Um, I uh, was in the midst of just beginning a little nonprofit sort of online resource library earlier this year, um, because one of the ways that end of life issues or dying is so hard in this country is just for a lack of basic information. That's why uh, Shoshana Berg and I wrote a book about it. And, you know, there's just a, still a very a, a need for basic, good, sound information. So I was turning my attention more to that and then uh, and, and letting go of some clinical work to make space for that. And then COVID hit. And then I realized, well, no, the world doesn't need a library right now as much as it needs direct support. So, so we kind of, as they say in business, we pivoted. That's <laughs> really a key quickly. word this year, pivot. It yes, sure is. We all are doing a lot of it. It looks like we're dancing probably from afar. Um, and yeah, so we basically, we quickly threw together this thing called Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, metalhealth.com, which is basically online palliative care counseling and coaching. Yeah. Um, so that's one response is getting into the tele world and di- getting back into direct support. And there's a lot to say about the details of metal and we can talk about that. But anyway, that's one for me personally, a big response. But then I think the other 
your question, the more exciting answer to your question is sort of what's going on in the world and inside of us and around us, all of us, is one way of looking at it is we're all having an existential crisis. Mm. Um, I'm used to, as a, as a hospice and palliative care doc, I'm used to working with you know individuals and families who are having an existential crisis by virtue of a, of a serious diagnosis or a brush with death or some trauma. Um, and so, you know, there's a pathway that we know how to deal with existential crises on some level um, for individuals. But one of, the, one of the things that's really beautiful when you work with, with folks in this way is you see all these changes and these transformations and these appreciations and this vulnerability. And with enough time and support, people come through some really hard stuff and land in a pretty beautiful place. Mm. There's a lot to say about that process, but it happens a lot. But now, one of the hard parts about having an existential crisis as an individual is you're doing it by yourself. Even if you're coming through to beauty, you're still left living in a world that is out of step with what you're going through on some level. And that can be some of the hardest parts of it all. Now, here we are now with all of us on some level having an existential crisis. And that's terrifying in some way, but it's also the opportunity that we could all actually be changed by this moment in important ways. And as a society and as a people, come through to this new layers of beauty and these new depths of, of knowledge for ourselves and others, et cetera. So I'll shut up because I get it, kind of excited about that. No, I love that. I love that. And, you know, it's the whole idea of how do you take a crisis or a moment and, and make it something meaningful and, mm-hmm. and beautiful. And I think that segues nicely into the work you do and how many of us as humans, we just don't want to think about death as a beautiful experience. We don't want to think about our loved ones dying as a beautiful experience, but that's so much of what the work is about and having people prepare for it in your book um, to help people, to help them be guided. So Mm -hmm. the the end is beautiful. Um, So what is something that you have seen during these last few months that really kind of touched you in a way that you haven't been touched before in, in your line of work? Well, I think I'm in so many ways, it's a continuation or an amplification of what any of us in this field see at the bedside. You know, again, it's just happening at scale. You know, it's happening wow. more casually now at home and on the streets. And it's not just the stuff of an ICU bed, you know, now these questions are so, so I'm, I'm just feeling people cracking open in all sorts of ways, but I also, and myself included. Um, but I often remind myself that we're in that you can't, there's no shortcuts. You can't just hop, skip right to, Oh, this is, this isn't horrible. It's beautiful. <laughs> this isn't terrifying. It's great. Right. You know, you know there's, you got to go through some fire and we're in the fire. So, you know, it's, we still got a ways to go, um, but there's a lot. So for me, I'm trying to let myself just sit with this stuff, feel it. I, I watch myself try to, try to do something with it, make something from it, create the meaning, blah, blah, blah. And I, that's great. I'm going to get a horse at a gate, but we need to first make sure we actually feel the thing we're responding to. Otherwise we can have these incomplete transformations or these time limited transformations. So I think we're still in that first order of business is just letting ourselves be discombobulated, letting ourselves fall apart on some level. No fun 
<laughs> no fun at all. <laughs> no fun. No. 2020 no. is funless. Funless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, and a discombobulation. It's ha- and it's 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 in cities. It's everywhere, absent the sort of day to day structures. Whether it's Broadway plays to rely on, even if you don't see them, just walking by the marquee and knowing these things are happening. Yeah. I think one of the moments I I have it most every day is I realize how dependent I, as a human being, have become on sort of daily cues and structures for me to feel sane, for me to feel part of something, for life to feel familiar enough to handle it. Um, so you, you, you pierce that veil and undermine these structures and wow, we are, we can quickly feel lost in obvious ways and subtle ways. And so that, that's my answer to your question, Meredith. That's what I, <laughs> right. This, this and problem. you know, like one of the things I did when we hit quarantine, well, I ate for two weeks and then I thought, <laughs> oh no, this is not going to go well. I'm going to be a TV star, but on the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of this year. Um, and so just to what you said, I had to create those structures because I always worked out. I always went to the gym. I always did these certain things, but gyms were closed. And so just finding that way to tap into, okay, I still work out. I just go on my porch and I don't have a lot of equipment, but I, boy, I can still hurt myself pretty good with a bunch of air squats, you know, <laughs> and, and taking that position of how can we become active in our own destiny, yeah. even when we control nothing. And, yep. and yeah, and yeah. we do control our response to all this, right? Mm. To some degree. So this is our creative charge: is while we're in free fall, things are crumbling around us, and all the assumptions that go with them. While we're at some point, we can look out on this bevy of raw material that we have, all these shards. Then we can start, you know, putting things back together again. We can create new structures for ourselves, for society. I mean, there's a huge opportunity here if we if we hang in there, if we keep our spirit, um, and if we pay attention. And so, yeah, it's it's hard being structureless, but the opportunity here is we get to build new ones, and maybe yeah. these new ones could be more inclusive, more responsive, more thorough, more beautiful. Like my husband says, I don't ever have to go back to an office. I can clearly work from home all the time. And I'm like, oh, but you'll never go back to an office because <laughs> this is my office. Do you see? <laughs> right. You might keep his job, but lose the marriage, right? <laughs> it's one or the other. Mirror the job. Take your pick. Well, I want to I want to pivot the keyword of the, the year. Um, hmm. I started reading this book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. I don't know uh-huh. if you know this book. Francis it's, Weller? Yeah. Yes. Oh. It's so beautiful. Um, but talking about grief and maybe the preliminary to people, um, you know, actually passing on and dying, it is like a period of illness, maybe, or there's mm-hmm. this preliminary grief, like we're going through with COVID or someone who's sick and then passes away. But I love this line in the book that says, loss is the other side of the coin of love. The greater the love, the greater the loss. And I think that just struck me that so much of our grief and maybe moving toward death or moving through the process is we're not allowed or we're not allowing ourselves to feel grief or we're mm-hmm. not even looking at death or looking at grief. It's mm-hmm. just this sense that we're not, it's not happening. Like this is mm-hmm. not really happening. And then it does happen mm-hmm. and we don't know what to do. We are just unhinged. And so how can you, how does like hospice care and the work you do help guide people through that process of, of grief and, 
and lead them into a more beautiful death. Like you said, it's not going to be instant. Oh, I did this thing and now my death will be beautiful or I will be yeah. fine. But, but what does that process sort of look like? Well, first of all, let me, we should pause for a second. Let me, let's define beautiful because what mm -hmm. I, um, what I mean by that word is something expansive and something that excludes nothing and something that is sort of just rigorously itself. Um, you know, versus a more superficial idea of pretty or easy or colorful, uh, yeah, you know, so I want to make sure, yeah, it can be pretty and colorful too, but no, the beauty I'm talking about is, 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 is a beauty big enough to hold sorrow, uh, regret, pain, and still be more than just regret, sorrow, and pain. You know, it's, it's having access to the whole spectrum of emotion. So to me, that's, that's beauty. Um, yeah. so I, I want to be clear. That's not, that's not, a, that's a, that's a, that's a big, it's a big thing. Um, and on your way to it, you know, this is grief is itself. I can't remember if we talked about this the first time, Meredith, but I, I'm, I so agree with Francis Weller's take on this. Um, and I think the linkages here are really, really key. Grief can feel so obnoxious. Um, mm. But if you realize that it's directly related to love, if you see it as part of love, well, immediately you have a different frame of thinking. You may be a little less repulsed by these feelings and, and, and more appreciative of them. You know, if you want to, if you want to sidestep grief, I got to, sure. You don't want to feel grief. Don't love. If that's, mm. that's the basic math. If you want to make that choice, <laughs> wow. good luck to you. And we'll some people do. For you. <laughs> What's that? And some people do, and, and some sometimes do. it seems easier. That's right. But yeah. in the long term, I've never seen that pan out for anybody. You know? But anyway, this linkage of, of finding a way to pull our attention to things that are otherwise, at first blush, repugnant or repulsive or terrifying. Grief, grief is itself a structure. It's a way to give some, uh, make a, a container to an otherwise really amorphous, vague suite of emotions that can be so off-putting and frightening and consuming. So seeing grief as a structure, a way to metabolize loss, a way to find yourself, to getting yourself to whole again, that's what grief is. Grief is a, is a metabolic process, a structure to begin to handle life's realities. And if you do that, if you, go, if you dare to wade into that, that's what's going to pop you out the other side into this layer of appreciation and realization of love and grief being related. And the realization that death and life are, are related, not at odds, which is right. a major, major theme. And I know I told this story the first time we talked, but I was with my grandmother and my mom when my grandmother passed away. And I know exactly what you mean about defining beauty in different ways, because there were just so many moments where we laughed. I mean, mm -hmm. my mom and I laughed and then she died. And I mean, and then we cried and then we laughed again. And the, the funniest mm -hmm. thing was, I mean, she was hanging on and hanging on. We were talking to her and I mean, we knew she was going, she was breathing every, you know, 30 seconds and, but it was hours and hours. And I thought, mm -hmm. what some, that said something she can't let go. And we called her Mambo. And I said, Mambo, I have your purse and I will give it to Papu, my grandfather. I will give it to him because she was always had her purse. Like she, you know, she needed to know where her purse was. And it wasn't a minute, two minutes, five minutes, and she was gone. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so we laugh about that. And, 
Mm. And then I, I went and got my grandfather and brought him to the hospital and I had a Starbucks and I'm, and my husband called and he said, how are you? I said, well, I'm just sitting here with my Starbucks and dead Mambo. I mean, it's fine, you know, and, but it's that whole, because we loved her so hard, mm-hmm. we could laugh and cry and, um, and process yeah. that. And, and that's the feeling that that was the gift she, she gave me, you know, I, mm-hmm. I never, Yeah. And that's so wonderful. And you get to not be at odds with any piece of yourself. You get to right. be sad and laugh. You get to cry and laugh. You get both. Right. right. So I know this is a topic that comes up a lot, but regret. Mm-hmm. And I know you've probably experienced a lot of that coming from people who are dying. So what is something that you've learned or that you like to share with people about regret? So they don't have this like end of life sadness or experience like how can you live better today so that so your death is part of that cosmic beauty in the way you want well for my money i think the one way or another you got to find a way um to to find a way to look at life find a way to see reality um that includes death you know, mm. in other words, I think a lot of us in this country in particular have a worldview that does not include death. And so therefore, we are, <laughs> we're out of sorts. We're at, we're at odds. Our view of reality is at odds with the bigger reality. And in that way, we suffer, you know. So you've got to find, as, as long as your, your concepts of reality don't include everything you think and feel, you're going to find yourself at odds with yourself and at odds with life. So the major, major theme here is finding a way to cut a view on life that does that, that leaves out nothing, including death. Um, that's key. Um, so, and that takes work. That takes practice. Like you're saying, there's like, it's a conditioning. First, these ideas may feel off-putting or foreign, but bit by bit, you start looking around and you see loss as little deaths. You see a haircut as death. You see going to the bathroom as a little death. You oh, see, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these are losses, you know, and what you know, the closer you look at death, you know, I'm not even sure what the heck it is. You know, uh, it starts to what we think of as such a concrete monolithic thing is actually pretty hard to define. And all I can say that death really is that I know of is, is a change. And if you kind of look around and you see changes, uh, is something is some construct or a thing is dying to make room for something else. And you, so, so part of your practice to this kind of worldview is appreciating and seeing change. Um, and relating that in a way to loss and relating that in a way to death, but also relating that in a way to transformation and new eyes and fresh viewpoints and, and newness. So anyway, going on too long here, but that, that's the main idea is to find a way to include death in your view of reality. So, okay, sorry, but, but <laughs> going on, but now you're fine. I can, regrets. I love this part, except now that I'm, every time I cut my hair, my toenails, I'm going to be like, do we need to have a funeral? (laughs) My toenails. Well, you can. I mean, I think you'll just find that you're just much more comfortable with loss over time. And that's sort of that segue to regret, which was your question. I mean, regret, it's like suffering. We can say, I don't want to suffer, but we're going to suffer in life. Mm. There is no way around it. And similarly with regret, if you have a memory at all, you're going to regret. 
you know, it's just, it's natural. It's just normal. But there is, so there's a lot to just accept in that. And at the same time, there's a lot to, it's sort of a relative framework. So yeah, suffering is normal, but I don't want to just gratuitously suffer. Regret may be normal, but I don't want to pile on regrets, you know. So the idea, it's almost like a harm reduction model. Like forgive Mm. yourself, appreciate that you're going to regret no matter what you do so you don't hate yourself for regretting. And set about minimizing regret where you can. And in this way, this is where once you kind of cop to death of being part of life and loss is is a daily phenomenon, well, then you can start taking your time a little bit more seriously, your decisions a a little bit more thoughtfully. Um, And in this way, you, you pay attention to what you really care about, what you really love, and you work from those places. And if you do that, you will minimize regrets. And by the time you roll around to the end of your life, you will have trimmed the sails along the way. And sure, you'll be things that you wish had gone a different way, but you're right. not going to be tortured with, if only I had realized my time was finite, then I would have done X, Y, and Z. If I had only known death was happening. Yeah. Right. If death included me, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, I think a lot of people, we say, oh, life is too short for this. And, and we say that, but it's almost like we say it like, ah, oh, the sky is blue. Like there's, no, right. we need to really think about that. Life is too short for some things. And so what, what do people regret? Too do they long re- for others, by the way. Meredith. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Honestly, that's, very, that's, that's a, a really important point here. Death is, I'm sorry to t- tangent real quick. I think we all talk about death is like something we'd never want. And a long life is a better life. Yeah. That's just not true. Actually. Um, there are a lot of yeah. people who um, choose to get off the planet. There are a lot of people who are in old age who are waiting to die who say things like God forgot me, you know, playfully, but they're ready to go and their body just keeps on ticking. So anyway, I just want to perforate this idea. That's that, really good. Yeah. I'm glad you did. So, but back to your question about time being short, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. What, what do people regret? I'm sure they regret like working too, too much. Right. Does everyone regret working too much or too long? You know, some, I find I live in the Bay area and work, there's a lot of workaholism here and and people entwining their personal and professional lives. So yes, I hear some folks regretting that they, um, um, work too hard and didn't spend enough time with family and friends, et cetera. But it's more often it's, it's the regrets I see are more along the lines. Like I wasn't honest with myself or somebody else. I let fear rule me in ways. I made decisions based on fear. You know, I didn't love as fiercely as I wish I had because I was afraid of rejection or this or that. I mean, one of the powerful things about realizing that you're going to die no matter what you do, even if you, you know, exercise all day, eat the best diet in the world, don't smoke, don't drink, blah, 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 you're still going to go. And I think once one of the realize one of the things to cop to there is, oh, there's a, there's, there's innocence in that. It's in other words, it's, it's like I, if I do everything right, I'm not going to be rewarded with eternal life. No, I'm not. It doesn't work that way. So, in other words, if I'm going to die, no matter what I do, that allows me, gives me some freedom, frees me up to say, "Well, well, shit." I'm excuse me. Well, no, you can you I, can cuss. It's fine. Okay. Well, I, I might as well try. If if I'm going to go down either way, I might as well try X, Y, or Z. In a way, what do I have to lose? I have regret. You know, that, that's something to really mind. But otherwise, I can fail. I'm, either way, I'm going down, so I might as well try. And so for me personally, and a lot of people I work with, you get this two-step thing that comes out of turning your attention to death. You get the 
you get the 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 reason to try. That is, time is short. You don't have an endless amount of time, so you should use it thoughtfully. You have sort of this compulsion to try things, and you also have this sort of built-in forgiveness. Like if you're going down, success, <laughs> failure loses meaning. Just try. So I, I, I'm emboldened to try things, and I'm also emboldened to forgive myself for failing, and that combination is pretty powerful. Right. And when you take it down to like um, a micro level and, and like on the life coaching level, which I, I coach a lot of people, you know, they're scared to try the smallest things, yeah. the smallest. And when you, when you start to think about death, it's going to take the, the stigma off of you trying a new exercise plan because who cares? Yeah. Who cares yes. about the exercise plan? Like who cares, you know? And so I think that that's so important to, to get to know death a little bit so you can live right you got it you got yeah. it there's the link yeah. well i want to circle back to metal health and tell us a little bit more about this platform and and you said you had to do another pivot um from library to more active so so give us a little bit more about what what it's about and how people can find it yeah well so metal health uh it's a place you can come and get basically extra support Whenever you need it, you know the 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 breakthrough for us is we're we are uh, we don't require a doctor's referral. We take we get to take advantage of the virtual world and be accessible beyond just location because palliative care is is well de- is well demonstrated in hospital and major hospital settings and in, mo- in urban areas. But it's very hard to find palliative care uh, in rural areas. It's very hard to find palliative care in regional, like the northern Midwest, the southeast. So, so palliative care is a wonderful thing, but it's, but it's tied to people and geography. And so the idea here is it's accessible wherever you are. And because you don't need a doctor referral, you don't need someone's blessing. You just give us a call. So wow. basically, we're av- available anytime someone needs some extra support. So... You know, we do a fair amount of with folks around advanced care planning. I just had a client this morning who is a, who's had a return of her cancer and and wants to get in the mode of of making decisions that are right for herself. So she's trying to kind of retool her confidence. So we're talking about how she's going to approach these treatment decisions, what she wants to protect, what she's willing to let go of, how she wants to proceed with treatment. That's a huge thing. Grief. We do a lot of grief work. Uh, supporting caregivers. So patients and caregivers call us. It doesn't matter who the issues are much the same. Um, uh, Existential issues, how to reframe your life, how to reframe reality so that you feel part of your life, not at odds with it. Like we were talking. Anything goes basically. We can talk about just about anything in the context, like it is in palliative care is serious illness, terminal illness, or caregiving for someone who is. So anyway, that's what we are. That's what we're trying to do. And there's, that's that's what we're doing. Oh, I love it. Gosh. Wow. I mean, what an opportunity. Hmm. I'm just, I I didn't realize it went that deep. That is so amazing. Well, I love it. I'm loving the work. So because it's also getting me away from the clinical structures that gum up this kind of work and get Hmm. in the way of the relationship between patient or client and provider. Uh, This is human to human work. We've kind of gotten rid of some of the structures that get in the way of the clinic and the electronic medical record and the 15 minute encounters and insurance billing and all that junk. And it's just humans working stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, as we round out, I'm rounding out 2020 in September, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> I'm starting my 21 on 2021 on October 1st. Oh, I'll but join you. as we round out this year, um, what is something that you're turning your focus towards um, in your own personal life? Like, how are you flipping this situation? And I know you are um, looking mm -hmm. at it from a, a growth standpoint versus, you know, the world is ending. Um, how, yeah. how are you doing that? And let's leave our audience with, with an uplifting note, which it's all been yeah. uplifting, but. Well, we, we have described so much of it, really. I am reminding myself of the power of grief. I'm reminding myself that there's weird feelings I'm feeling is grief. That there's a, that, and, and as it goes with grief, I won't, we won't feel this way forever. You know, this, this is not going to stay like this. As hard as things are, it won't stay like this. We won't feel like this forever. So meanwhile, I'm letting myself fall apart a little bit. I'm getting rid of stuff. I'm jettisoning things that aren't serving me in my life. Um, I'm retooling sort of the fundamentals of life, basic aesthetic needs, basic nutrition, basic housing, getting fundamental, putting my feet back on the ground again. And so I can retool. So that's, I'm letting it, for me, I'm letting COVID shake me down. I'm letting all this decay shake me down and then we'll see I'll, I'll reacquaint with myself with the irreducible side of myself and then i can start building again oh, that's beautiful well bj thank you so much as always i appreciate you thank you meredith it's a pleasure talking to you thank you for joining me on this episode of the same 24 hours remember to rate review and share this podcast it really matters I appreciate it. See you next time.